You are listening to the Balkan Bread Podcast. This is a podcast created to connect diaspora worldwide by sharing each other's stories. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Balkan Bread podcast. My name's Amina, and thank you guys so much for being here. I'm very excited to be recording yet another episode. If you guys are new and you don't really know what this podcast is about, essentially, our mission is to connect different people in the diaspora, specifically from the Balkans, and really just share their stories, share different experiences and things that they've been through. Typically, we have a lot of people from different career paths, which is really interesting to just hear about their journey and how they got there. Um, I know we have a lot of younger listeners, so it's definitely interesting to see how you can find some of your future potential mentors on this podcast. So very excited to have started it and always excited to share your guys' stories on here. So super excited because today we are continuing one of our probably most popular themes on this podcast, and that is mental health and talking about trauma and our identity, different, you know, crises that we've had. Um, And a lot of this, which is, I'm super excited about is backed by research um, that we're going to talk about, which I think is really important because I find that a lot of times, you know, you hear people say certain things or I don't know, they just come to these different conclusions, but a lot of it is really just based on their personal things that they've gone through. So it's interesting to hear how, you know, different things through history and through science can really affect our upbringing here, whether that's in the United States or Canada, that kind of thing. So talking about that, talking about nationality and just, you know, of course we are all Balkan, but you know, there's different fragments in between that. And so it's really interesting. We're going to break it all down. I don't want to talk too much longer because our guest is going to do most of the talking, I hope, um, and educate us on all these different topics. So I'm super excited to have my friend Yudmila Petrovich on the episode. She is based in Vancouver, Canada, and she has been working on a really interesting study that we're going to talk about um, a little bit more in depth. So I'm just going to hand it over to her and just have her introduce herself. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, so a little bit about me. As you mentioned, I'm based in Vancouver, BC, so in Canada. And my family and I came to Canada when I was two years old. And I grew up here and I still live here. And my research was part of my master's thesis. So my master's in counseling psychology. And I'm I'm really excited because the reason that I did it was for my community and to have those stories heard because I I really couldn't find anything that made me feel very seen. And I know that a lot of people feel that way. So that's why I'm so excited to be sharing this on this podcast. And hopefully it resonates with people and helps people maybe find some words for the ways that they've been feeling. So um, a little bit about me. 
I was born in Belgrade, Serbia, um, and I'm culturally Serbian, but I really identify more with being Balkan because I have a lot of mixed roots. I have um, a Croatian grandmother, a Macedonian grandfather. One of my grandmothers is half Greek, half Serbian. There's some Turkish and other Balkans sprinkled in there. Uh, so just because of that, I, I really feel that I, I identify more with the Balkans because I have so much family all over the place. Um, and both my parents identified as Yugoslavs until the wars. Um, and then, as we all know, it, it, you, you sort of had to choose what you identified with at that point. Um, so the way that they put it, we're Balkan, but we're culturally Serbian because that's where they largely grew up. Um, so my, my last name also Petrovic, which very distinctly links me to the Balkans and specifically to Croatia or Serbia, was actually a total fluke. My family name was Macedonian until a couple of generations ago. And basically, long story short, my great grandfather, who's Macedonian, just changed the last name because he opened a bakery and it was like a business move. Like, oh, I'm in Serbia and I opened a bakery. And so this might sell better. So, you know, I just bring up those stories and those lineages partly because they are all a part of me. And I think they, uh, all of those converge to who I am right now and um, what I draw from in my research and in my work, but also because I really want to bring those stories of how complicated and complex identity can be in the Balkans, because I will be uh, talking a lot about that in in this podcast and in my research and those are ongoing conversations of you know we're supposed to sort of fit into a certain box and that box has political meaning it has other implications it's linked to histories and most of us don't actually fit into those boxes quite as easily as we're expected to so that's why i bring up uh those stories and those more complex lineages uh whenever i introduce myself um so a little bit about my work uh, I, as I mentioned, I have a master's in counseling psychology and I'm a therapist and I work mainly with survivors of sexualized violence and I do some work also in reproductive health and mental health around that. And as you mentioned, my, my thesis topic was about Balkan identity and intergenerational trauma and the ways that identity in diaspora can be fragmented through various factors and one of the main ones being intergenerational trauma. So I think that kind of covers me. Um, yeah. I think that's so awesome about the bakery. That's really funny yeah. business move. And that's so true though. I think a lot of times it's easy to like immediately put people in like a box just because of like their last name mm -hmm. and, you know, depending on where they're from, like, my mom's maiden name is Ivankovic, which mm -hmm. like, totally sounds like Croatian, but we yeah. <laughs> grew up in Bosnia. So it's just like yeah. somewhere down the line, something happened, someone married this person or yeah. whatever, but like in the grand scheme of things, you know, it really doesn't matter. And I think it just all kind of goes to show how I always say we're much more similar than we are different, mm -hmm. even though 
we're too stubborn to admit it. I feel like most of the time. <laughs> so that's just the way it works. And I think that's kind of a characteristic of our culture. And, you know, we use humor to disguise mm-hmm. all kinds of things and just talk about, you know, traumatic events, even though they're obviously not something that's, you know, should be mm-hmm. learned about. But that's that's just Balkan. That's just how it is. So yeah, that's just how we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really cool that you devoted a lot of your time to doing this study and, you know, getting your MA in counseling psychology. And it's really beneficial to talk to people who um, work in this field, because what you'll find is that there really aren't too many Balkan therapists, like Mm -hmm. all around, or at least, at least in my area, I don't think I could think of one. Um, There's someone that does kind of like self-help coaching type of work. I don't know, she might actually be a licensed therapist, but anyway, there aren't too many people out there. So I think it's really beneficial, you know, if someone's living somewhere where there really isn't anyone that they can talk to, at least they have this episode and they can hear a little bit of your advice um, on these subjects and things that we're gonna talk about. So when did you first become interested in counseling psychology? Like, were there any notable experiences that you had or was it something that you always wanted to do? Yeah, that's uh, also also sort of funny. Uh, I chose in my undergraduate degree to major in psychology. And it was basically, I had a few things that I was interested in. And out of all of those things, that was the most practical, the most likely to get a job after you graduate. So, you know, child of immigrants, I was like, okay, let's, you know, I still want to pursue my passions, but what is going to get me a job? What's going to be practical? So that's really why I went into psychology. I didn't always know that I was going to get into this field at all. It was not really the plan. Even when I went into uh, my undergraduate degree, it wasn't the plan to become a therapist. Uh, I was actually initially planning on becoming a forensic psychologist. Uh, But then while I was in school, I ended up getting a job in a transition house. So a safe house for women and children escaping intimate partner violence. And from there, I I just sort of ended up working largely in that field, in the anti-violence field. And counseling felt like a natural progression in terms of, you know, professionally, uh, just as a way I was kind of hitting a professional wall and feeling like I needed more tools. And so it was just a way, going back to school was a way that I could be better equipped to provide that support to survivors of violence. And then broadly, I was drawn to the mental health work because I've had my own mental health struggles. And I just found that it was a field that really spoke to those experiences. And those experiences also, I think, equipped me better to understand what clients may be going through. And same with anti-violence. I was was kind of drawn to it because of my cultural and and family background, just knowing that uh, family violence is so rampant in the Balkans and many Balkan families have histories of, of violence, including my own. So, it was really something that I sort of fell into uh, by accident. And then once I did, it just felt like that was the place that I that I needed to be. And I think the more I stay in the field, the more I'm drawn to all the different ways that we can really facilitate healing. And I'm really drawn to also the intersections of healing and community care and activism and social change. And I really think that, you know, we do need different roles in order to cause that social change. And as much as we need organizers and speakers, we also need artists and we need um, healers and people who who do that work as well. So 
I think I've really been finding that so many of my own experiences and passions and skills really fall within this, this field as well. So that's, I guess, how I got into this field and I'm looking forward to where it takes me next. Yeah. I love that because it's, you know, you didn't really know what you were doing essentially, but it was kind of just taking those steps and eventually mm-hmm. finding that career or profession. And I don't like to put anyone in a box per mm-hmm. se, but it's really important that whatever job you end up having, it's something that you actually really care about and that you mm-hmm. truly love and enjoy doing because it's like, you know, how much time do we spend at work mm-hmm. doing work and always working? And it shouldn't be the only thing in our lives, of course, but um, that's something that I was always kind of taught, like make sure mm-hmm. you feel stuck in, in your current profession, things like that. So yeah, totally. Going into more of your studies and just everything that you've been working on, especially mm-hmm. recently, could you just tell us a little bit more about your thesis? And I know this is obviously going to be a long answer, but um, any just Mm -hmm. kind of bullet points or just a synopsis, like what you ended up finding to be true? Was there anything that surprised you when you finished all the research? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, it stemmed from my own experiences of being born in when it was still Yugoslavia, right? And then coming to Canada at a young age and really sort of struggling with what that identity meant for me for most of my life. And having so many people that I spoke to, I think we sort of are drawn to people that have similar experiences. We tend to find each other. And so meeting people throughout my life who had similar experiences as me, obviously we all have our own unique experiences, but who have that shared experience of coming here from the Balkans or being raised in Balkan diaspora and having really struggling to uh, understand identity within that context. And when I looked into it, you know, there was a point where I was really trying to understand and find those things about myself. And this was well before I decided to do this thesis, but there was so much written on Yugoslavia. There's, you know, like going to the library, there's just um, rows and rows and rows of shelves that are filled with books on Yugoslavia. And it was in all of that, I could just never find anything that really made me feel seen. And that spoke to my experience. It was all about like political and historical context. So the wars and like this general did this and this president did that. And these were like the peace agreements and all these things that I think the people get lost in that. And I think that's, that's really what I was looking for was the stories of the people, uh, not the politicians, not, you know, of course, we're all impacted by the political uh, background and the context. And that's something I'll speak to more. But I could never find things about the people they were lost in all of that. And then even when I could, it was largely about our parents generation, there was kind of this surge in literature uh, around around the war, so 90s and early 2000s. And it was a lot about the immigrants and refugees and a lot about resettlement and integration and immigration things. And then, you know, quantitative measures of PTSD. So like here, do, do a questionnaire and this is the number that you have that measures PTSD. And so again, it was technically about people, but not really about them. 
And there was, there were some narratives of people's stories. It's not like that doesn't exist out there, but it's also largely about people who came as adults, which they're, you know, that is a unique experience. And there, there's this big gap where, uh, their children also are not really often talked about. There is a study here or there that might mention children or youth, um, but nothing that really looks at the long-term impacts of that experience. And so it seems like, you know, Yugoslavia was a really hot topic for a while. And then the research sort of started to decrease and almost disappear in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, and so there's this whole generation of people that's grown up in that time that was kind of forgotten in the shuffle. And that's the generation of kids that were around for all of that, right? We were, we were all there for, some of us were younger and don't remember necessarily, but we're still impacted by that. And others were younger, but still have some memories, but we were there for the resettlement. We were there for uh, life in a new country. And then even people who were born, there are a lot of people who were born maybe right before their parents came to Canada or the US or whatever, whatever country they're living in who are still feeling the impacts because that's, you know, it's about 10 years, they say that it takes people to settle into a new country. So there's, there's this whole generation of people who grew up with this backdrop that there's very, very little research done. And the research that is done very rarely really centers those voices. Um, so, so that's kind of the context of how I really came to this work is just finding that there really wasn't a lot of work done on this at all. Uh, so my research specifically looked at women from the former Yugoslavia who were born there, but were under 10 years old when they came to Canada. Um, so essentially people who had grown up in Canada and had come young enough that for all intents and purposes integrated perfectly. So, um, you know, don't really have an accent when they speak English, uh, integrate into school perfectly didn't really have problems with adjusting to a new culture because, you know, they were so young or they were born here. Um, but that's still quite often have intense struggles around identity and, and a lot of different pieces around that. So I was looking at like, what are their experiences of growing up? How did they form identity? And I also, part of centering people's stories was also drawing on how important oral tradition has been in the Balkans historically and uh, using that narrative and storied approach that really allowed participants to form their own healing narratives around those experiences. So, and, and all that to say, even though, you know, for the, for the purposes of research is the way you have to do it in academia, you have to have very like specific categories. Like these are the people that I'm going to look at, but I just really, I want people to feel as validated as possible. So I don't want people to think that just because they might not fit into the categories that I'm talking about, that it doesn't apply to them. Because the reason I had to do such a specific sample was just because I was doing it within academia. But I think the findings are really relevant for people who were born in diaspora as well, even people who might be second generation. And I also know, I, you know I've had people who didn't identify as women, who might be men or other genders that have read this research and, and found that the essence of the experiences is still really relevant to them. So um, all that to say, I think that, that this research can also speak to broader Balkan identity, not just people in that category. 
And so in that research, what I argued was that people growing up in diaspora experienced what I'm calling a balkanization of identity. So that was originally a geopolitical term. So balkanization being countries, regions, nation states that separate or sort of torn apart by conflict or violence, uh, such as the Balkans. Um, and it can have a bit of a negative connotation as well, but the way that it's been used since then has been in other ways as well. And the way that I'm using it is to describe the fragmentation of identity that happens through trauma and conflict. And usually this is the piece where it is kind of a negative connotation is that it's usually through external forces that we don't really have any control over. So um, we are completely shaped by uh, maybe political events that really we have no control over. And so for Balkan people that are growing up in diaspora, this can occur through, you know, the migration process and specifically conflict generated diaspora. So you're, you know, you're far away from your country and your culture. And so that has its own struggles with it, right? It's hard to build identity anyways in diaspora, no matter what the context is. Specifically when it's conflict generated, that means the migration process was probably traumatic right? You, you didn't just choose, oh, I'm going to, you know, go to a new country because it seems nice there. You didn't really have a choice. So it's largely traumatic. Um, and you largely have little choice about going back, right? There are, I know people that go back um, to live, to live in the Balkans, but usually there's really not much there for people, right? It's still a region that struggles a lot with stability and with the uh, economy. And so people don't really feel like they have the choice to go back whenever they want. Um, another, another piece too is the intergenerational balkanization of identity. So, um, you know, I'll speak more to that later, but basically what I'm saying by that is our parents who are the people that we're supposed to be learning identity from largely also have fragmented identities based on, you know, the traumatic migration growing up in a country and now it no longer exists and having to choose a new identity based on those pieces and intergenerational trauma, which I'll speak to more as well. And then specifically the population I looked at who are women that can also happen through patriarchal violence. So for example, histories of family violence or the use of sexual violence and conflict and those pieces as well. So that is, um, sorry, I can talk forever about my research, but that's, that's the broad picture. And then what I found was that um, identity was really relational and transgenerational. So we built identity based on our, you know, the people around us, our family, our community. We built uh, identity uh, in sort of looking at things transgenerationally. So drawing on our ancestral lineages and thinking about, you know, future generations. So everyone sort of thought about things in a very intergenerational and familial way, which wasn't surprising because we do come from a very familial and collective culture. And it was very rooted in historical and political context. People felt very defined by those things. And it was dynamic and uncertain. Like people were always changing how they felt, they identified, things didn't feel very stable or certain when it came to identity. And that also makes sense just given the region that we're from. Um, and then the main themes that came up were uh, identity and belonging. And so that means belonging to the country of birth, the country you grew up in. So in this case, Canada, but you know, anywhere that you might've grown up and 
also belonging to the diaspora community in Canada for the participants in this situation. So both those countries, but also finding it hard to find belonging within your community and diaspora. And a big piece of that was language. So um, I can speak more to that later, but a lot of people didn't feel like they knew their language very well. And that didn't made it, made it feel very hard to feel like you could identify with, with something or belong to something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, or people had like a Canadian or American accent when they spoke. So they would go back to like whatever country they were born in and immediately would be asked like, where are you from? Oh, you're like, you're, you must be a foreigner and they're speaking in their own language. So that was really hard for people, I think, too. Um, anything that you want to say? I feel like I'm talking a lot. I have a lot more to talk about, but um, I don't know if anything in there is something that you wanted to comment on or that was resonating. No, I love all of it. And I think everything is super relevant because right when you were mentioning the group that you used for your research I think a lot of people listening like do fall into that category and like you said maybe they don't but a lot of this that you're saying right now just about identity and learning Mm -hmm. the language you know I think all of that is very relevant to everyone just because Mm -hmm. it's something that we've all kind of dealt with and I think language is a huge thing I did have someone recently message me asking you know do you know of any groups or resources, or I really want my kids to learn the language. Mm. Our kids were born here. So then another problem arises. It's not just like our generation Mm -hmm. who like, you know, our first language was probably Bosnian or Mm -hmm. Serbo-Croatian or whatever Mm -hmm. you call it. But for them, they probably did learn English, but Mm -hmm. then it's like the parents want their kids to learn, you know, Bosnian and I'm not at that stage but it is definitely a thing that it's like oh wow what am I going to do like for my kids if there's no language school and things like that and then even when you do go to the language I feel like I don't know why but certain people just like in the diaspora in general like talking about language I feel like sometimes you get like ridiculed or like you might not pronounce Mm -hmm. something right or you might not know a certain word or like you said, going back home and then people like picking up that you're not from there, that you have an accent, which I'm sure is the case. But if you do stay a lot longer, what I found is that you start talking like just like the locals, but it's when yeah. you get there, it's like very apparent that you are mm-hmm. from the US or from wherever. But um, no, I think all of that is, like I said, really relevant. And there's a lot to unpack there just with mm-hmm. identity and sense of belonging and yeah. not just sense of belonging in terms of coming to the U.S. and being, you know, a refugee and immigrant mm-hmm. trying to fit in, but also fitting into the diaspora and these different pockets that have started to, you know, appear and different groups and I feel like we talked about this on our first call um, mm-hmm. that we had about the community in Vancouver and how mm-hmm. it was relatively small. Yeah, yeah, wrong. yeah, absolutely. And a few things that you that you just said there. Um, I mean, one of the pieces about thinking about your kids, right? And that's when I talk about identity being relational and transgenerational. That's one of the things that a lot of because I was interviewing all women, they often spoke about, well, what are my kids going to be like, right? I want to pass on my identity to my kids. I want to pass on the language to my kids. And I think there really is this connection to both ancestors and who we come from, but also 
what is that lineage going to look like? Right. There, there was a lot of that. And absolutely, there's a lot of shame around uh, language or in general, not knowing culture a lot. Right. So people, people almost feel, you know, it's like this, this sense that you don't have choice in in how you got here. You don't have choice in how you build identity, but then ultimately there's also shame around the fact that, you know, you, you did do the best that you could, you learn the language, the best that you could and the culture, the best that you could. And, and yet there's this shame around like not knowing things to a certain degree. And am I allowed to say I'm Balkan? Am I Balkan enough? Am I Serbian enough? Am I Bosnian enough? All of these pieces. And I know we'll talk more um, later about some of those complexities as well. Um, but yeah, no, thank you for, thank you for mentioning those things. And absolutely, you know, like smaller, smaller diasporic communities, it can be harder to find a sense of belonging too, right? Because um, obviously the, the bigger community is, the more uh, nuances there are, the more spaces they are that where you can find somewhere where you fit. But yeah, there's a pretty small community here. So, uh, you know, you, you don't have much choice also in how you find your belonging within your diasporic community as well. Um, yeah, for sure. And, and another thing too, is like, we, we build identity through family. Like our, our family is our big um, point of contact for how we build identity and culture. And in the research, it's also family is the, the point of transmission for intergenerational trauma as well. And so that was also a huge theme was about um, the transmission of identity and trauma through family. And a lot of people talked about um, family secrets or silences, like things that weren't talked about or about how family might be fragmented as well, right? So either because of distance, like your family's so far away, you barely see them. Uh, you maybe don't even know parts of your family. For people who are from multi-ethnic marriages and families, some people even had like ethnic tensions within their family, right? people had to choose sides and that caused fragmentation or family conflicts. You know, when we talk about Balkan people being stubborn, you know, it's like you can hold a grudge forever. Uh, so there was a lot of that, like family conflicts that ended up being lifelong grudges or family violence. So that was like a really big one too, um, for sure. Is that, that family piece as well. Um, yeah. And then the other thing was like those ethnic and national categories. When we talk about that, even like when you say, you know, the language, it's Bosnian, Serbo-Croatian, you know, whatever you want to call it. Like we always talk about things that way where we're like, um, you know, we don't even have language for how we, how we describe ourselves and how we fit in to those categories because it's so complex and everything is so political. Like you don't want to say, you know, I'm defining you as, this. uh as this right um so that was a really big thing too is the ethnic and national categories and people really struggle to define themselves within those and that's why when i introduce myself i introduce myself in the most complicated way that i can really i'm like these are all of my lineages mm -hmm. because people do struggle with that and i struggle with that and i just want to complicate that a little bit and and say there are these categories and we don't have to fit in within those like we can build our own experiences. And a really big thing around that was like cultural practices and religion. So I'll speak more to that. But, you know, when we talk about like small communities, for example, often in some communities, 
like the, the whole diaspora will gather around like the church, for example, or whatever um, place of worship you might have in your community, right? Exactly. Um, and then the last one that I'll mention was health. That was a really big one. And that one I wasn't really expecting. I thought I thought about national categories and ethnic categories, but um, health was a really big one. People talked about like folk remedies and how that uh, that was a place of connection to culture and something that sort of set them apart from their Canadian born friends. So one person said, uh, you know, potatoes in your socks. That's something that sets me apart from. And actually in my thesis defense had to like say that quote and was like, and then sort of explain like, you know, if you have a fever, then your mom comes and she puts potatoes in your socks. So we have these little folk remedies as well. And also mental health and addiction. People talked about that in their families as well. And the generational and cultural differences and how those were viewed and like, if they were even talked about, right. How they were defined. Um, so that was like a really, really big one as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I remember, I don't think for me it was the potatoes, but it was like, (laughs) yeah, like soaked socks. Yeah. Fever, like same thing. Right. Yeah. And going back to the whole language thing, I remember uh, it's been, what, three years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, three years ago, I guess now, um, time is flying. I was in Bosnia and I was volunteering as part of a teaching program in Mostar. And mm-hmm. because we had kids from all the different ethnic groups, mm-hmm. when we referred to language and they were supposed to talk in English anyway, but of course, sometimes, you know, they'd have mm-hmm. to explain something. And so we would always just call it local, like speaking local. Mm. Like that was the mm. term because we didn't want to. And I don't think any of those kids would necessarily gotten like offended or anything, mm. but you do have to kind of like tiptoe around it and you don't really know how to address it. And that's mm. my thing, especially having this brand and everything. Like I never want to make it seem like I'm favoring like one group mm. over the other or this or that, because no, I really want to be, as inclusive as possible. And I know there's things that can be done better. They just require a lot of work and a lot of, you know, having these conversations with people and yeah. being open to learning more about their perspective and everything like that, because you don't find things like this a lot. And I think that's why it's important that we're doing this kind of work. You know, like you said, there weren't a lot of studies that were done recently mm-hmm. and there really weren't. I had to write a paper in college and we could pick pretty much anything that we wanted, which was great. So of course I was thinking to write about Bosnia and Mm -hmm. I had to find something very specific research backed. So I decided, oh, what if I talked about like PTSD Mm -hmm. and specifically in like war traumatized children. So people like my uncle who I think he was eight or nine years old Mm -hmm. or kind of thing. And honestly, I think I found maybe one study and it was done, you know, right after the war like all mm-hmm. of them were done in the early 2000s yeah but after that you really can't find a lot i know there's different projects and different centers and things mm-hmm. that they've set up um in the Balkans now that people can use as resources but it there really is not a lot of research and i think that's one of the issues too because how are we supposed to you know, come to these conclusions and figure out why we are the way that we are essentially without doing studies like this. And 
I think too, like people maybe aren't as willing to open up about it. Like, I don't know if you had a hard time just selecting like a group of people for like your sample and stuff. Like, was that difficult just to like persuade? It's women though. So I feel like maybe it wasn't as difficult, but if you were doing <laughs> like men, it probably would have been a lot more challenging. So yeah, I think that it was, it wasn't that challenging and only because, um, I, you know, as someone who's part of that community, I was like an insider researcher. Right. And so I was able to recruit within my circles and sort of ask people like, you know, someone that I know and then ask, ask them to ask someone. So it's called snowball sampling. Right. Right. So I think that because of that, and I did that intentionally because there is so much politicization. Um, there really is uh, so I didn't want to, and there can be a really like disconnection from culture as well. And so I didn't, you know, the other ways I might've done recruitment was, okay, what if I, um, what if I put something up in, uh, you know, the, the church or the cultural center or the mosque and like all these pieces. And I was like, yeah, but not everyone accesses those. And the people who don't access those might also be the people who, struggle the most with their identity and with their belonging or yeah I could do something where um, I send it to different Balkan groups but even that it's like not everyone wants to you know a lot of people will sort of stay away from things that are Balkan related in diaspora because of that politicization and that was that was a huge theme and that was maybe when you ask if you know the in the beginning you asked if there was anything I was surprised by this one, I shouldn't have been surprised, but it was, you know, I was like, okay, I, I don't want it to be about the, the political events. I want it to be about the people. Mm -hmm. I was so intent on that. And then um, I didn't want people to get lost in the political conversations. And then I was like, well, the politics are an inescapable part of people's identity, like whether you want them to be or not. So that was a huge theme was the politicization of identity, probably one of the biggest themes, actually. And it was that one of the participants even said she was from uh, she was from a very ethnically divided place and she had um, a mixed ethnic family. So they were they came here because of that. And she said, like, what is their past that our identity is war mm -hmm. and it's inescapable. And so that came up a lot was people like being nervous when they meet someone from the Balkans, because it's like, I want to connect. We have shared experiences, but I don't know what, what your views are. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, are you nationalist? Are you going to assume things about me? And it came from both sides, like from within the community and external people who are not Balkan. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, like broader political context were applied to people's identity a lot. So uh, for example, being asked to like be a spokesperson for the region. Right. So someone's like, so like what, why did Yugoslavia fall apart? And I'm like, yeah, I know as much as you do. Right. I'm not, I'm not a historian of the Balkans or um, you know, people asking about things that are very um, like asking people to speak about like Kosovo and what's going on over there. And, you know, it, these are people who are just sort of struggling with their identity and don't don't know necessarily about these things, right? Um, and can't speak to those things or don't feel comfortable speaking to those things. Or there's this application of the macro level on the individual. So 
you know, assuming that because you're one ethnic group, you're going to hate another ethnic group. And most of us, at least people in my circles, are like, no, we just like, we just want, we just want to connect to one another and, and share our experiences. But then there's these assumptions that, well, because you're, you're Croatian, you're going to hate Serbians or vice versa, because you're Serbian, you're going to hate Croatians or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so that actually ended up, this was my most surprising finding was that people actually ended up identifying quite frequently with more tangible and I guess, safe things, more stable things. Like they would identify with other parts of their identity over their cultural identity. So yeah, like I'm Balkan, but primarily if you ask me how I identify, identify with my hobbies, with my identify as a mom or as a sister or um, as an academic or with a certain job I have because people felt like there most people talked about the political instability and like I don't know if I choose a category if I put myself in a box how long can I stay in that box before it has to change again so that was something that you know people really felt like those were so uncertain and so ever changing that it's like well how can I root myself in something that I don't know if it's going to be there mm. um so that was really interesting and at first I didn't really know I was like well no this this isn't what I was looking for I was asking like what do you identify with and I was like yeah that's that makes so much sense there's like this reclamation of our identities have been so politicized and so um, you know, these higher forces have, have defined who we are so much that there is a sense of like, I want to reclaim a part of myself. I want to identify with something that's, that's mine and that I can, I can define in my own terms. So I think I went on a little bit of a tangent there that didn't have to do anything with uh, your question, but that I think that was like a really big thing was that politicization as well, right? And and that connection to um, home country, like birth country, or like you know the Balkan side, or like the Canadian side, or American side, and then just like not finding your place in diaspora either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's really good to talk about but it's also it's like something that's very unavoidable for us and it's just always going to be there which really sucks because Mm -hmm. you know here you are in this new country and I always say it all goes back down to like who you are and the way Mm -hmm. that I was brought up is maybe different from other people but it's more so like you don't just judge someone face value based on like where they're from what country they grew up in like it really doesn't matter you know i that could just be me and like our family friends and people that we grew up with everyone was kind of mixed and just from all over the place and so that's how I was taught to like perceive other things and then it's like you start to get older and you start to hear all these other nationalistic views and how people are and I'm just like what in the world like I didn't and it could just be a point of like being naive like when I was younger but I was like I didn't really know people felt this way about certain things you know it's really crazy to me but we're a product of our experiences and I can't just, you know, tell someone to change their viewpoint about a certain group of people because they maybe went through something that didn't get, give them the best perception of that group. So it's like, yeah. you know, who am I to say, you know, whatever. No, absolutely. I think the newer generation is, and my hope is that from doing things like this, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I created the brand is like, not only because 
we wanted a little piece of home, but also because we wanted to, you know, set the stage for the next group of people mm-hmm. that come after us. And I think we talked about like oral traditions and sharing all these different stories. But at the end of the day, I'm like, if none of this is documented, then what are we going to have like for our people kind of thing? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just think like setting the stage, you know, newer generation is a lot more open than obviously the older generation. So, I'm hoping that different efforts and like initiatives and things like that, people will start to kind of redefine and reimagine like mm-hmm. their identity. And it's like, you're not just Balkan, like that's just a part of you. It's a cool part of you. It's very complicated, but it's just one thing about you, you know, like there's so many other yes. things. And I think that kind of goes into the next question, which I feel like we talked about this a little bit, um, but we can obviously go a little more in depth. So when we talk about diaspora, we often talk about the struggle of being too American or too too Canadian for our homeland, but then we're too, you know, whatever nationality you are here for the US or Canada. But I think there's a lot more to be explored here. Like that's one thing I always say, but this is not the only identity struggle we're faced with, as there are often times where we question where exactly we fit in within the Balkan diaspora specifically. So can you explain how identity is fragmented within the Balkan diaspora specifically? Yeah, absolutely. That was that was huge. I think a lot of us uh, struggle with that. And um you know, that, that sense of belonging, there's some things that are typical for, you know, people for in general from immigrant backgrounds. So language or cultural practices and, um, you know, things that we uniquely associate with like our immigrant identity side. Right. Um, so there are those kinds of things, the cultural practices, the language, you know, the complicated names (laughs) that people can't really pronounce. Um, those kinds of things. I think there are a lot of pieces there that we do have in common with other people from other immigrant backgrounds. And then I would say that there is also that those very specific pieces that the Balkan diaspora has that can also complicate that sense of belonging. So, uh, you know, we're talking about the politicization of identity and the nationalism in diaspora communities. So that can be a really big thing. Um, you know, and people might try and build this cohesive sense of identity and then be met by nationalism and, um, you know, being basically told you don't belong here. And that's really like, that's the exact reason most of us are where we are, right? That's the reason that we're not in Bosnia or Serbia or Croatia is many of us that came at a certain time are here because of that hatred, right? And so, Um, it it kind of is continued in diaspora and that can be really tough, especially for people who, who don't agree with that and who are really trying to find a sense of cultural safety and belonging. Um, And that's, I think we'll talk more about the multi-ethnic background thing, but that's also something that's particularly common for people who might come from those multi-ethnic backgrounds, um, which is also, as you said, super common. Like a lot of people come from, a multi-ethnic background, especially in diaspora. So, um, you know, many people experience these like ethnic uh, small communities as holding those, this like very specific set of values or beliefs. And they're usually associated with traditionalism or nationalism. And, and that is our, sometimes our only connection to our country of origin or culture. So 
that can huge, like be huge, a huge conflict for people where it's like, I don't agree with, I was raised with different values and this is all I've got. This is, I think that's why, you know, we're seeing such a, um, I don't know, maybe I'm just discovering these accounts and stuff, but I've really noticed that there's a lot more social media communities popping up like Instagram and all these Balkan communities that are talking about like, you know, like your brand and all these other accounts that I'm, I'm following that are really talking about how we can all connect. Right. And talking about that shared experience. And I think it's because so many of us can't find that anywhere else. Right. So we're, you know, we're taking to the internet, we're a new generation, we're finding other ways to connect. Right. Um, and that can be so tough because it can be really tough to also find if you were raised with different values to find people who share that and that cultural piece. Right. Uh, so, you know, for example, it was so refreshing. Like I think it was last summer on this podcast, you talked about black lives matter. And that's something that, you know, I have a handful of people from the Balkan diaspora that I have found that do talk about this stuff, but it's not really, those kinds of issues aren't broadly talked about in our, in our communities. Right. So that's an example of times where it's like, okay, I have these values that I really care about and it doesn't seem like my community, like there's a place for that in my community or, um, you know, sometimes it can even be in not just, I can't find a place, but it's like in direct opposition. Like I have to keep these parts of me separate. Like there's my, my like Canadian side. And then there's like my Balkan side and I have to keep those separate. So for example, like people who might have more traditional or nationalist values, for them, like speaking out about like feminism or like LGBTQ plus issues, those are considered sort of like Western ideas, which they're not because there's a very rich history of feminist and queer activists in, in Yugoslavia and in the Balkans. So um, it's not really a Western idea at all. But, you know, that's often how those things are considered or even talking about Black Lives Matter or racism or um, any of those pieces that that can often be considered sort of in direct opposition to, you know, quote unquote, like traditional Balkan values. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so another thing is also the religion piece, right? Because um, I can't speak for all diaspora contexts, but you know, we, it's often sort of talked about as like, that's a defining piece of identity for people. Like you're, um, you know, if you're Serbian, you're necessarily Orthodox. If you're Croatian, you're necessarily Catholic, all those pieces. Right. Um, so in Vancouver, at least it's, you know, if you're Serbian in Vancouver and you want to learn folklore, you want to learn Serbian and go to Serbian school, attend any cultural events, they're almost all exclusively connected to the Orthodox church. And, for many people, it's like, you know, whether you're religious or not, it doesn't really matter. You go to those events. Many people talked about, you know, yeah, I go for cultural or community reasons, not for religious reasons. And that's fine with them. Right. But not everyone will feel safe about that. So when we talk about, you know, the complexities of identity and diaspora and all of these different pieces on top of just like ethnicity, um, you know, there's things like, that institution in Serbia is very politically involved and vocally homophobic and transphobic. So if you're a Serbian person who's um, LGBTQ plus in diaspora, right there, you might not feel safe accessing uh, cultural events that are tied to your diaspora community. Mm -hmm. So I'm using that as an example of 
some of the ways that identity can get really complicated, even more complicated if you belong to a group that's already marginalized within, within that Balkan context. So if you're an ethnic minority group or you're LGBTQ plus or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big piece too. Um, I have one more point, but I don't know if there's anything in there that you wanted to. No, I think it's great that you brought up all of that stuff because it's all totally relevant. And I think a lot of times we observe these things happening mm-hmm. in our communities, but we don't really talk about them. It's just kind of like, that's just the way that it is, you know, yeah. how things work, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it always has to be that way. Right. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. going back to like the Black Lives Matter and all of that, you know, I remember like when that first started popping up and everything, it was just like, nobody was saying anything. Like I wasn't really getting a whole lot of like conversation in terms of like people messaging me, asking me to talk about it. I think maybe one or two people brought it up and that was kind of that. Um, And then I was like, you know what? Like, why am I not talking about it? Like it's 100% relevant to us, you know, especially the majority of us do live here in the States. That's something that, is always going to be around us. I mean, I grew up in Atlanta. Like, it's not something that I'm not going to talk about. Like, it just seems really wrong. Like, it shouldn't matter where you grew up, but it's just like, I've been surrounded by all kinds of people growing up. Like, my whole life, like, has been around that. So just to see, you know, there's a lot of different parallels and you guys can go listen to that podcast episode if you would like. It's probably a year old now, but it's still pretty relevant in terms of some of the things that we talked about. But Yeah, I think it's important to bring it up and, you know, maybe there are certain other points or other people who aren't going to agree with all that stuff, but I think it doesn't matter because, you know, it's what you happen to, you know, stand with and you happen to be Balkan. I mean, that's kind of how I always look at it. Um, I know it gets more complicated, but yeah. And like you said, the whole thing about um, religion and everything being kind of tied to, you know, the church or the mosque or whatever like and I think that's almost in a way to where when people first came and they first started building these Mm -hmm. community centers and things like that just kind of made sense and like it naturally fell into place that we would have you know like folklore and classes and stuff like that there like I think that's 100% like Mm -hmm. I understand that but then it's also like you know if you didn't grow up close in that community Mm -hmm. you didn't have access to it you know you kind of missed out on those things and then also what if you just didn't come from a very religious family Mm -hmm. or like maybe part of your family is super religious, but then the other part isn't. And it's like, you know, you still respect the religion. You still maybe identify as that because there's all kinds of people here who, you know, say they're Christian, but they don't go to church. Like I always Mm -hmm. kind of look at it that way. And so it's like, but where do you fit in? Because I feel like sometimes when you say that you're Muslim, like people automatically, you know, think you're like, wearing a hijab going to pray all the time and it's like no but if I'm put in those you know different situations like of course you know I'm going to respect their religion and the values and stuff it's just not something that really and maybe this could change later I have no idea but for me it's never been like a huge like Mm -hmm. you know factor in my life I know other people it has been and it's been a great thing for them and I think that's awesome so but like you said it's kind of puts people in an uncomfortable situation because then it's like, do they really want to, mm-hmm. you know, go to these things? They're not going to feel totally comfortable with it. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's really what it comes down to is 
Um, you know, I don't want it to be misunderstood that I don't think we should have those things. Cause I think absolutely for many people, it is a big part of identity and we absolutely should have those. And I think it's really important to be able to access your religious or spiritual, um, practices in diaspora. But at the same time, it, if that's the only place that you can access those things and, um, you know, that institution happens to also, maybe you're not religious, maybe that's not how you identify, maybe, like I mentioned, you know, uh, you don't feel safe going there, whatever it may be. Uh, the thing that happens in diaspora is our identity gets flattened and we have sort of less options, right? So if you are in the Balkans, you, you don't have to go to church or mosque in order to be Balkan, right? Or be Serbian or be Bosnian or whatever, whatever you may be, right? So I think that's one piece too, is like our identities get flattened and our options of what our identity can look like also get, mm -hmm. um, our options are so slim, right? And so one of the things also um, that was up, that came up in the literature is that people from Yugoslavia, not just who came in the 90s, but just in general, like all the waves of migration, use like a lot of, um, it's called like translocalism. So if you've read about di diaspora and migration, you might've heard of the term transnationalism, but translocalism is, people might identify with rather than their country of origin, they might identify with their city or their village or the region that they're from rather than like the country, which makes sense. Right. Cause like you've, you've talked about um, you know, we have so many similarities and we're diverse, but there's so many things across the board that we do share. And one of those pieces is like our regions are so diverse. So even within a, it's not just between countries, like even if you hear dialects of language, there'll be there will be a bigger difference between you know part of my family is from from Hvad, which is one of the islands um, in in Croatia off the uh, Adriatic, right? Their dialect is so much more different from what they speak on the mainland. There's so much more difference between those dialects than between someone from Zagreb and someone from Beograd, right? even though that's like Croatia and Serbia. So we have such regional differences. So for example, you know, someone from Belgrade might be from Belgrade rather than Serbia, or someone might identify with um, being from a certain region versus being from that country. Um, or even, you know, one person I interviewed, she came from, uh, her lineage was like shepherds and farmers. And so she identified with, um, she identified a lot with uh, the rural areas and the sort of farming and agricultural uh, pieces of the rural areas of the Balkans, regardless of what sort of country, what borders those are in, right? Um, so I think that's another piece. We don't have a lot of options with how we build identity and what identity looks like, and we don't have that nuance. So when you were talking earlier about how you were raised you know, thinking like, yeah, like we're all sort of from the same area and you didn't realize that there was nationalism until you were older. And I don't think that's naive at all. We, we are, like you said, a product of how we're raised. So, um, you know, my parents and sort of the people in our closer community would always just talk about Nashi, right? Like ours. Oh yeah, they're Nashi. And like, I wouldn't know if they were Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian. I just knew like they're ours. And that I think is, 
is like really a beautiful way of looking at it. Right. It's like, yeah, we have, we have all these different pieces that we bring, but ultimately there's that shared, that shared experience. Right. And so I think that's also one of the pieces that complicates that diasporic cohesion a little bit, because we don't really have those nuances when you grow up in diaspora, right? Like my dad always knows exactly what like tiny village someone in our community is from. He's like, oh yeah, they're from, you know, some, some place I've never heard of. And where, and I don't have that. Cause I don't have that sense of, um, I don't have that sense of understanding of where we're from. Right. And all the nuances of that. I just, I grew up here and I, uh, you know, I know, I know what I know and I don't know all that nuance stuff. Right. So I think that's another piece too, is like our, the nuance of identity and our options are flattened in diaspora. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I was in Sarajevo once and I was doing this, I think my friend was working it and then I just kind of tagged along. It was like a, just like a free tour, like a walking mm -hmm. tour thing. And I wasn't familiar with the city at all. Like I have, I think a cousin there, but it's not really somewhere that I took the time to properly explore. Mm -hmm. And we went to one of the restaurants there. I don't remember which one, but basically it was like a buffet kind of thing. And you would just go up and like, tell them what you want. And so I'm here with this group of like, I don't think they were all American. I think, I think a couple of the girls were from Canada actually. And then like the guys were like from Ireland or something. I don't even know, trying to explain the different dishes and what they were going to try and all of this stuff, because they were only there for like a few days kind of thing in Bosnia. And it was funny because I'm like describing everything and I like order for myself and you know how the people working at restaurants are always super funny and just like, you know, of course they know that you don't understand them or they assume they like assumed that first they assumed that I was, you know, like a foreigner, I guess, even not putting that in quotes now, but yeah. like, because I was with them or whatever. And then I start like ordering and I just kind of ordered for all of them, mm -hmm. you know, tried to explain it or whatever. But as soon as I started that, the uh, guy working, he's like, oh yeah, I'll buy a nasha. Like, don't mm -hmm. worry. Cause they were first like, oh my God, how are we going to like, <laughs> cause they're just like pointing to all the different like foods. Like yeah. I want this and this, mm -hmm. <laughs> which kind of made it easier in a way, like to have everything laid out. But it was just really funny. Like those kinds of situations and you're like, yeah, yeah. Like, don't yeah. No, totally. And that's like the collectivism at play, right? Like despite everything, like yeah. we we claim you, you're ours, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's a lot like just being like you said, the different parts. And I, mm -hmm. I like that there's a term for it because I didn't mm -hmm. know that before, the translocalism, because that's mm -hmm. a thing too. And I've just been around like my parents, like they're both from Herzegovina. So I'm just used to, we talk the way that we talk. And then like other people, like my friend, um, I think, yeah, I think it was Minella's dad. He like came over like whatever to, and he was meeting my mom for the first time. And he was just like, oh, you're from Herzegovina. Like immediately. Yeah. Like, oh. I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the way that we talk, like we have a different, I don't know, like accent and stuff. And we don't like, we're not in a rush when we talk, we talk kind of mm -hmm. slower mm -hmm. than a lot of people. So anyway, but it was just really funny, like how that is all translated because before I didn't really know that was a thing. I was just like, oh, this is just how we are. And then I'm starting to meet these people from other parts of the, you know, region. And they're like, oh yeah, this is what we call, you know, like, mm -hmm. Benza, and I'm like, oh no, like you can call it like Boston or like Pipun or um, Karkuza is another one. I'm like, 
mm-hmm. what is a kanpusa? I've never heard that before. And yeah. I'm like, oh, you haven't? And then I'm like, is that the right word? <laughs> and I'm like, I swear, um, like, I swear it is because <laughs> my grandpa definitely said that before. Like, then I'm like, wow, there really are a lot of different words, like for different yeah. things and just depending on where you're from. But I think it's great to be able to learn that and to learn mm-hmm. that is super fun. So yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we talked a little bit about uh, intergenerational trauma, but I guess, can you speak to how that also plays a factor in fragmenting our Balkan identities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when we experience trauma, like something traumatic happens to you, it fragments our sense of self, it fragments our identity, it fragments how we view the world. Um, and those around us, right? So if something traumatic happens to you, you might um, see the world as an unsafe place um, or you know, it, it fragments our relationships. And so when we talk about intergenerational trauma, it's the experience of trauma being passed on, right? To generations that may not have experienced that, but feel the impact. So you know, in the literature on uh, descendants of Holocaust survivors, you know, people who are two or three generations removed from the Holocaust, are still showing signs of being impacted by that by that atrocity, right? So there's been a ton of literature. Actually, it's a it's a field that has a lot of literature, and there's very little on the Balkan or the Yugoslav context. There's like a handful of things, and so that was a really big part of my research too. And the way I looked at it is more multi generational trauma. Uh, so which is more or less interchangeable, but that's sort of how I think about it is, it's not just, oh, something bad happened in the 90s and now we're feeling the impacts. It's like every generation has had um, an experience of war, be that, you know, the world wars, the Balkan wars, you know, depending what area you're from, there might've been um, occupation by different empires and all that stuff. And, um, you know, of communism, people had different experiences. So for some people, it was great. For some people, it wasn't. Um, uh, poverty, political instability, even when there wasn't conflict. Um, for women specifically, uh, also considering the impacts of family violence. Uh, so there's all these pieces that compound from each generation to the next, because as we, as we know, um, there isn't really a lot of opportunity for healing in the Balkans. So all these experiences with each generation compounds onto the next. And um, so there's some, some newer epigenetic research um, that's showing actually that trauma is passed on like very tangibly, like in our DNA. Um, and that's newer. So it's like emerging research. And it's not really within the scope of what I do. Cause I don't, I just think it's very like validating and promising, but I don't understand like the actual research itself because it's very, uh, you know, talking about DNA and all of these things. And I'm not a scientist by any means. But a lot of the research actually shows that intergenerational trauma is passed on really in the silences and the gaps and the things that aren't talked about. And it's really often talked about like as a ghost or a phantom or something that's this ominous thing that's hanging in the air, but has no name and no one knows what's going on. So basically like these subsequent generations experience the anxiety, the tension, the impacts of that, the weight of that, but don't have enough knowledge or understanding to really make sense of it or process it in, in any healthy way, right? 
And that's really also like my findings were very consistent with that. So most participants talked about either not really knowing their stories of their family or like only knowing things vaguely or in a fragmented way, knowing bits and pieces. Um, There were a few instances actually where participants like later as adults would find out, oh, they actually had family members who had been killed or maimed in conflict that they had just never known about. It was just never talked about Um, or like huge tragedies in their family. It just was not, it just wasn't mentioned. people were often like afraid to ask or they would find out stories from their grandparents rather than their parents. So this also like flattening of like generational roles as well. Um, And even like if they know the stories, it manifested, the trauma manifested in different ways. So there might be like a lack of emotional regulation in the house and there was like high conflict um, or parents didn't know how to talk about certain things and maybe they would talk about them and they would talk about them a lot, but in a way that was like very desperate and sort of like dumping more than processing. Right. And, and people felt like they didn't really have the ability to deal with that stuff. Um, Like one participant even said she didn't know she had come from a war until her like school teacher asked her like to speak in front of the class about it. And So there were all these pieces of people not either feeling like hyper defined by war or like really not knowing anything about where, what they had come from. Right. And so um, even if they knew everything about the wars, there was really no room for processing or understanding. And often people might know about the history. Like, you know, when I talked about standing in the library and seeing all these books, that's what people knew. That's what people read, trying to understand themselves but really there's such a dissonance and a disconnect between reading about these horrible things. And then like, well, what does that mean for me? Where does my family fit into all of this? If you don't have your family stories. Right. And so what that means is people carry that trauma, but don't really know how to make sense of it. Right. Yeah, no, for, yeah. Sure, for sure. I think there's a lot, like, like you said, you have to look onward. And I think what happens a lot of the time and this could be to a fault just because of the literature that's already out there. It's just talking about the war. It just talks about the mm-hmm. war. Like literally anything that you try to find that's written by like a bulk in person references mm-hmm. that, which I think it's great that we're bringing these things to light and people definitely need to read them and hear about what happened, you know, in our part of the world. But at the same time, it's like, there has to be more, you know, there has yeah. to be something else out there for people to be able to read and, you know, something that they can relate to, but it's also more particular to their generation of people. Mm -hmm. So I think it's definitely, there are so many cases and just things that I can think of that I've either experienced or my friends have gone through and we can definitely, this all relates back to Mm -hmm. the intergenerational, the transgenerational trauma that all of us have in one way or the other. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And like not being able to find anything other than the war means like you're not going to have a cohesive identity, right? Like that, like I mentioned earlier, one participant said like our identity is war. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean for a person? It means there's no room for like more joyful parts of identity. Like there's no, no room for like enjoying these like amazing pieces. Like we come from a rich and beautiful place and it's, there's no room for that when your whole identity is war and that's all, you know, right? 
And a lot of that is transmitted in family. And like I talked about, you know, that's also where we learn about our identity and our culture. So a lot of us, you know, if that's where identity is passed on, and that's also where trauma is passed on, those two become kind of linked. They just become, you can't tease out what is identity, what is culture and what is trauma. Mm-hmm. Right. And we see that a lot, like, for example, how rampant um, uh, like violence in families can be and and sort of like using uh, violence as punishment. And it's like, well, that's cultural or like the ways that we communicate in our families, like that's cultural. Right. And that's because these like really unhealthy mechanisms in our in, in our generations have been passed on where, you know, it's it's like the, the trauma is so tied in with the culture that we can't separate them right exactly it's something that I feel like no matter what you're gonna have to deal with and you're gonna kind of carry that on like Mm -hmm. inevitably I mean there's not a whole lot that you can do about it other than trying to develop some kind of understanding and Mm -hmm. trying to wrap your mind around everything that you know has transpired from there so going back to talking about family have you found that diaspora who come from mixed families have a harder time when it comes to dealing with things like nationalism and politicization of identity which I feel like we kind of answer that Mm -hmm. but do you have any specific examples or scenarios that you're comfortable sharing Mm mm-hmm Yeah, I think we absolutely like we did touch on this. Um, A lot of people that do come from multi-ethnic families uh, felt like they didn't have their place in diaspora because of that. Like, you know, being, well, I'm not Serbian enough for the Serbians. I'm not Croatian enough for the Croatians and I'm not Canadian enough for the Canadians or I'm not Bosnian enough. I'm not, you know, whatever, whatever you may be. So a few participants did say that they didn't feel like they fit in anywhere. And that was partly because of being multi-ethnic and people who are multi-ethnic were more, more likely to feel like they can't find a sense of belonging because of that. And particularly when they're met with nationalism, where it's like, you can't, you have to choose a side, which again, uh, it's more complicated than that, but that's kind of the message that we can get um, quite frequently. And uh, people also talked about like how fluid their identity had to be to accommodate safety. So um, one person, when I asked her, I started the interview with like, well, how, you know, just it's a big question, but like, how do you identify? Mm -hmm. And she said, it depends where I am and Mm -hmm. who's asking, right? Like, how do you navigate different contexts? And you have to, you can't just present your whole self. You have to navigate what's safe right now what part of me can I bring in this context in this scenario um so definitely like I've I've had that too like I've had you know I grew up having these broad categories of like my Canadian side and my Balkan side and those are broad right and then as I got older like you know just like just like you had mentioned that experience for you, it was like suddenly my Balkan side, the more I went out there in the world on my own, even within my own family, like I've had, I've had those scenarios where someone, you know, is like, okay, well, but you're, you're this, right. And it's like one part of my identity, one part of my heritage, I have to say, yeah, yeah, that's identify with this rather than being like my whole self. Right. Yeah. 
and I've had that in diaspora too, where someone like who grew up here um, is, is like, you know, well, what are you? And cause I'm, I'm this. Right. And so making it very clear that, uh, you know, there's tension un- unless I am what they say they, they are or what they want me to be. And this was something that most people talked about, especially mm-hmm. people that had, that came from multi-ethnic families was, you know, the politicization of identity and how to identify oneself. It's, it's a personal identity thing. It's like a personal, a very personal thing, but it can also make people really highly visible and it can be a question of safety for people too. So that's- yeah, I think that that's something that was really big or people would even say like, I'm, I'm Canadian. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially, you know, that's, that's fine. That's a lot of people do identify that way. I'm Canadian or American, but mm-hmm. um if, if you're choosing to say that in that moment to, for comfort, so not having to explain what that means or why you're here or where you're from or out of safety, then that means that you have to erase or hide your Balkan identity, right? And erase a part of yourself. So. Right. Which you shouldn't have to do. And I think it's, but that's a good point, especially the whole like safety and, you know, it really does kind of depend who's asking because mm-hmm. if just an American person asks and I will usually say if they're referencing, cause it's usually a reference to my name and they ask, mm-hmm. Oh, well, where are you from? And then I'll tell them. But if it's mm-hmm. just like a big group of people, like I'm not mm-hmm. going to, you know, flat out, just put it out there. But then mm-hmm. if it's our group of people, you know, I would probably say like if it was a bunch of other Bosnians or whatever, it actually doesn't matter. I'd be like, oh, well, we're from Herzegovina or oh, I'm from this city, kind of like going back to the like translocal thing. And mm-hmm. when you were talking, I don't know if there's any way to replicate this, um, but I thought it would be interesting. And I don't know if you've seen that show. It's like Love is Blind and they put them in the different rooms and, you know, they talk. That was yeah. actually filmed here now that I'm thinking about it. But anyway, it would be really interesting to do something not necessarily like dating but just putting people in these different rooms to talk to each other and you know they don't know their nationality their name like nothing of course maybe the voice might give certain things away I don't know but it would be interesting to like ask them some of these questions and it's like you're in this space where you don't know who you're talking to but I wonder if like people would be more willing to open up because I feel like sometimes it's like, oh, I'm not even going to try to like talk to that person because of, you know, I already know what their viewpoint is. I already know where they stand or what they think of me, mm-hmm. even though they don't know me as a person. It's just yeah. because of where you're from. I just, I don't know. That would be kind of interesting. It might be terrible. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely like at the beginning of the pandemic, that was like my guilty show that, yeah. that really helped me get through that initial time. But yeah. I, I it's like a reality show but around identity and around like yeah we're we're so much more than that and we don't even get to know one another because because there's so much tied to where you're from and who you say you are or like what you say you are rather right yeah very crazy just and it's like this conversation it's like you can there's just so much to talk about and it's like kind of hard to even wrap your mind around everything Mm -hmm. because there's so many different pieces and things working you know kind of against us if you will Mm -hmm. but I think there are things that we can do to be more open and just be more willing to talk about these things so the next question talks about something that 
I've talked about on the podcast, I'm pretty sure when I was talking about grief and stuff, um, talking about therapy, because I think sometimes it's hard just in general, I feel like it's hard to, you can't force anyone to go to therapy or people might think that because I'm going to therapy, I'm automatically weak or there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's especially true in our culture. So since this is your line of work and I'm sure you've dealt with this before, but what would you say to any Balkan person who has ever just said to somebody, you know, like, why would I pay to go to therapy when I can just sit around and talk about my problems with my family and friends? Because I've definitely heard that before, Mm -hmm. like, just in a joking way. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's something that you shouldn't joke about. And the people that joke about that are probably the ones that should go to therapy. <laughs> so um, just curious, like, what are some things that even that we could say, like, if someone is very closed minded, mm-hmm. doesn't want to go, but it could maybe potentially help them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. And especially like when people know my line of work. Um Yeah. So the like, why pay for therapy when I can talk to friends and family? Um, One thing I will say, like, first of all, it does make sense to me why Balkan people aren't drawn to it. And my, I think people might see it as sort of like a Western thing. Um, And it makes sense because we come from like such a collectivist and familial culture where, you know, I guess traditionally we would hold one another up, right? You'd have a community, you'd have this built in, um, village or or tribe whatever area you might come from and like the roots of western psychology are very focused on like individualism like you come in we don't bring other people in right Mm -hmm. right um but the thing is with collectivism is we are in communities that have so much trauma so we're not actually able to hold one another up and rely on one another the way that you would um in a collectivist society, right? right? So if we're not doing our own work as well, um, that means that we can't show up for other people. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is a part of collective healing and liberation is also showing up for ourselves so that we can show up for one another. And I think that there is room for our traditional ways of healing. There's room for our community care and collective liberation. And there is room for our own work. One of the ways that um, that can be facilitated is going to a mental health professional, like a therapist. And I would also say that those are distinct things, like there's room for both. So you can talk to friends or family and you can talk to a therapist and there's room for both and they have different roles in our healing. So talking to friends or family or community members, it can be really helpful and it can be really healing. And especially when you have that shared experience, even more so than therapy sometimes. I don't think therapy is the be all end all for absolutely everything. For example, like when I was doing my research and I was talking to other women growing up in diaspora who are Balkan, that was so powerful. There was so much power in that. It was so healing to be able to speak to someone who gets your experience, right? And you can talk easily about the differences, but there's just this, this shared experience that's so important. And that has a specific purpose, right? Whereas talking to a therapist or other mental health professional, you can get more insight into experiences and patterns. You get tools for coping, more resources that you know the people around you might not be equipped to actually help you with, right? Um, 
And there's also like this misconception, like you said, that it's just talking like, you're, well, why would I pay and talk to someone when I can just, I can talk to anyone. Right. right. Um, but there's so many more tools that come up in therapy that can help people process their feelings and their experiences. So there's even like newer therapies, for example, look a lot at like the somatic, like the body experiences and how, how um, trauma is stored in the body. And some of those therapies, you, you might not even be talking all that much, right? Like there, you might not even, your healing isn't necessarily going to happen in the talking at all. Right. And you're still processing those experiences. And even when we do talk, like therapists are are so trained and skilled at listening for certain things. So you're talking to a therapist, but it's also like we're trained. There's so much going on behind the scenes. We're listening for certain things. We're um, you know, picking up on patterns and we know what to do with those, right? We take those pieces and we know what to do with them. Whereas if you're just talking to someone, they might not be picking up on those things. And also it's like someone is removed from your social circle and they're bound by confidentiality. They're not going to tell anyone what you said. They're not going to like gossip to like the neighbors about what you just said, Um, which I'm sure is many Balkan people will be happy to hear. (laughs) Um, You know, they're not going to be having, having coffee and telling the neighbors what you told them. So, you know, and that's not something that you might typically get. And it's also, you don't typically get with friends and family, just like an hour that's just for you. Our relationships, like you need to give as much as you take. If you're, you know, if you're a good friend and a good partner or a good family member, and that's not the case with therapy. Like you get an hour a week or every two weeks or every month, however frequently you go, that's just for you. So I think that that's also, there's just those pieces And there's also a thing like things that you can't go to professionals for, or sorry, that you have, that you can't go to your friends or family for like, there's like, you talked about grief, like grief is something that's overwhelming for people to carry sometimes, right? If you're not trained, if you're not used to those things, grief, intense trauma, like intense mental struggles that people might have. Those are things that, you know, people don't necessarily know how to carry when someone brings it to them. Um, and that's something that someone that has training and expertise is, is able to support and carry. Right. Um, and then also, I think we talk about mental health in a different way than we talk about like physical health. So, you know, for example, if, um, if you are sick, you're nauseous, right. You might make some home remedies. You make a certain tea, you might, um, eat ginger, whatever, you know, you do something at home, you feel better. That's okay. But if it's intense, it's prolonged, you're throwing up all day. Um, nothing you're doing at home is helping. You might also go to the doctor and see like, Hey, can you do some tests? What's the underlying cause? Maybe you need medications. Maybe you need some sort of care. Maybe you need a surgery, whatever it may be. And it's the same thing for mental health, right? Like you can talk to friends or family and find it helpful. But if something is persistent and overwhelming, then that might not be something that your friends or family can help with. Like if you have a big exam and you're nervous, mm-hmm. yeah, talk to your friends, right? You don't necessarily need to go. You could go to a professional, but you don't necessarily, you might not have the need to go to a professional because it's like, yeah, it's next week. Once that's done, I'll be fine. Exactly. But if you're anxious every day for no reason, 
and you're always anxious and it's impacting your day-to-day life, that might not be something a friend is equipped to help you with, right? So I think those pieces are really important to remember. And also remembering like, you know, as a therapist, I, it's not just when people are experiencing a huge like mental breakdown, it's people come to make huge life decisions that, you know, Hey, I just need someone to talk to someone who is, doesn't have a vested interest in a certain decision, or I want to navigate some like relationship issues, or like I have a major life transition that's kind of stressful. Um, or even identity, like we're talking about identity, like how do you make sense of something? You can talk to a therapist about that. You can really go to any, like a therapist for anything, really. It's like someone who's non-judgmental and they can support you. And so the last thing that I will say is, I think many of us from the Balkans have been taught that we're surviving. And if you're surviving, that means you're okay. Mm -hmm. And I really think that people deserve so much better than just surviving. People deserve healing. They deserve to live their life more fully, more joyfully, to have those relationships that are thriving and that aren't always cloaked in conflict. And that's the last thing that I will say about that is, yeah, you're okay, you're surviving, but you deserve more than that as well. Yeah. And also, I think part of the reason why it might be hard for people to go see a therapist is because they feel guilty like to Mm -hmm. take time for themselves and to just talk about themselves just because that's you know the kind of culture that we come from like you're always you know worrying about someone else and helping somebody and making sure they're okay and Mm -hmm. it can be kind of hard to put yourself in you know that position just to like Mm -hmm. go and do it for you I think sometimes it's a little bit intimidating because yeah you're like do I almost like not to say that you I don't know, like you, you should go and it's not something that should be viewed as like this, like big thing. And you don't even have to tell people that you're going, you know, you can yeah. keep it very private. I think sometimes people are like, well, what if they like person finds out and like literally mm-hmm. like, how would they find out? You know, yeah. like, there's yeah. no way, like you don't have to share it with anybody. And I think that's okay. Like you just have to do it mm-hmm. for yourself. Um, it's the most important thing. So, and yeah, Sometimes you have to try different therapists. Sometimes the first Mm -hmm. one might not always be the best one. And, you know, I think that's okay. At least the best one for you um, and Mm -hmm. your situation. And just some people prefer to see a woman over Mm -hmm. a guy or, you know, some people doesn't matter. So Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I will say about the, I think a lot of people feel guilty about, you know, taking that time for themselves. And I will say that one of the biggest changes that people see that are unexpected changes, like mm-hmm. outside, no matter what they come to therapy for, one of the biggest um, side effects is your relationships get deeper and they get more, you're better able to communicate and people, no matter what they come to therapy for, mm-hmm. usually will see a positive impact in how they relate to the people around them. So you're going for you and you deserve that, but you also it's not selfish because it's going to have a positive impact on the people around you as well. Right. And you will start to see a change like in certain Mm -hmm. people, especially like if they did tell you that they were Mm -hmm. going to talk to someone and then you like start to see, Oh, you're a lot more happier. You Mm -hmm. don't seem worried about certain things or, you know, just different things like that, which is really, really great. Um, And I think everyone should tap into that. um, Mm -hmm. So 
Very cool. Was there anything else that you wanted to add on before we just kind of do the outro for the episode? I don't think so. I think I've, I'm sure, I'm sure I could, but that's all I'll say today. (laughs) For now, right? (laughs) Yeah. No, I think there are some really, you know, helpful, just obviously, you know, experiences and advice and different things like that. So um, really cool. I'm happy that we got to have you on and got to share a little bit more about the work that you're doing. I think it's super duper important. And if you guys listening, if you want to stay connected um, with her, we'll have all of her information in the description of this episode. So in the show notes, um, but I don't know if you want to quickly just shout out your website um, for those listening. Yeah. So my website is a good way to get in touch with me. My ludmilapetrovich.ca. That's like my, the English way that I say it. Um, and I am also on Instagram uh, at Ludmila Petrovich as well, but I don't, I'm a bit of a lurker on Instagram, so don't expect to engage with me that much there, but I am on there, so. Gotcha, gotcha. Very cool, very cool. Well, thank you again for being here and thank you guys for listening. If you are interested in being featured on an upcoming episode, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or just send us an email. It's hello, like the word hello at balkanbread.com with the subject line podcast and more than happy to see if we can have you guys on the show. So thank you again for listening and we will see you on the next episode. Bye everyone.